Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God said, Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Genesis chapter 9 verses 14 and 15 New International Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, as we wrap up the series we call A Flood of Truth. R.D., would you like to say a word of greeting and give us a little preview of what we're going to hear about in this final episode of our series? Greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. In our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we began what we're calling our Baker's Dozen of Facts that listeners can rely upon to assure themselves that the Bible's account of Noah and the Flood is literal history. Now, we certainly understand that in this day and time, the skepticism of the Bible's historicity can be very widespread. And of course, that's one of the biggest reasons that we do Anchored by Truth, to help listeners understand that that skepticism, though it may be widespread, is more often than not, as a matter of fact, far more often than not, not grounded in evidence or reason. We also understand that one part of the Bible that is most frequently attacked by the skeptic is the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And that's, of course, where we find the story of Noah and the flood in chapters 6 through 9. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this series on Noah. We wanted to re-examine, take another look at the evidence that supports the historicity of the Bible's account of Noah and the Flood. So in our wrap-up in these last two episodes of this series, we're going back over 13 data points, that baker's dozen of data points, that listeners can absorb quickly and easily to assure themselves that the Bible's account of Noah, the Ark, and the Flood is historically accurate. It's trustworthy. And by extension, that other parts of Genesis, and the entire Bible for that matter, are equally trustworthy. We know that a lot, probably most of the listeners, do trust the Bible. But we also know that in today's world, people are often so overwhelmed with the details of life that it can be hard for them to find time to assemble the facts and evidence that can reinforce their faith in the Bible. That's what we want to do on Anchored by Truth. We want to look at the Bible and many of the criticisms that are directed against it from the standpoint of an honest layman. And we want to find out whether a reasoned analysis of available evidence supports the Bible's truth claims or the critics. When people do so, we think they will find evidence from a wide variety of disciplines provide overwhelming support of the Bible's trustworthiness. Yes. So in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we went through the first seven of our Baker's Dozen of data points. So today we want to go through the last six of those data points. So, just as a brief review, the first three data points are that the Bible's description of the Ark 
show that the Ark had the size and strength to carry a huge cargo of animals, their food, and Noah's family. Even when you use conservative estimates, the Ark had the capacity to transport at least 19,000 sheep-sized animals. Also, the Ark's 6 to 1 ratio of length to width is the same basic design proportion used for modern ocean-going vessels, so it could be expected to be stable even in rough waters. And third, the interior and exterior coating of pitch not only sealed the Ark against leaks, but also improved its impact resistance against collision with debris. Especially during the earliest parts of the flood, the wind and waves would have been tossing huge amounts of vegetation being torn off from the sinking lands. Exactly. And data point number four is that even the incidental details mentioned in the instructions given to Noah about the ark make sense. The opening below the roof would have helped to manage the heat load within the ark that contained the eight people and thousands of animals. And the three decks that Noah was told to make make sense from the standpoint of both cargo capacity and load management. And data points five, six, and seven have to do with the fact that there is abundant geologic evidence that at one time there was water covering the surface of the entire globe and that the water moved enormous volumes of sediment and earth in exactly the way you would expect in the biblical flood. Marine fossils are found in a limestone layer just below the summit of Mount Everest. There are layers of sedimentary rock on every continent on Earth, and some of these layers are hundreds of feet thick and extend over thousands of miles. Finally, many geologists, such as J. Harlan Bretz, who is recipient of the Geological Society of America's highest award, acknowledge that there are canyons on so many continents that are not carved gradually through the slow erosion of a particular river. Instead, they were carved suddenly, catastrophically, by floods of unimaginable proportions. Exactly. So those are seven of our 13 data points that listeners can return to when they hear assertions that the Bible's flood story is just some kind of a fictional morality tale. Now, data point eight is that the Earth's fossil beds contain abundant evidence of a past sudden catastrophe that caused an immediate burial of both marine and land creatures. For instance, there is an exquisitely preserved fossil of an extinct marine reptile called an ichthyosaur. Now, the mother ichthyosaur is shown having almost completed birth to a live infant. It's such a dramatic capture of a moment in time that the beak of the young reptile is still inside the mother's birth canal. Now, if you find a fossil of an isolated tooth or a shell, for example, it's not really possible to say how quickly or slowly that fossil formed. But there are countless examples like this fossil of the ichthyosaurs that shows that a long time span could not have been involved in the formation of the fossil. In this case, in the case of this ichthyosaur, the fact that the mother and the infant are trapped in a not yet completed birth process makes it profoundly clear that both of the animals were rapidly overwhelmed by catastrophic burial. And that kind of a catastrophic burial would have been consistent with the worldwide flood of Noah's day. You know, it's just not feasible that the mother was laying on the bottom of the ocean floor, giving birth for thousands of years while she was slowly being covered up by the accumulating sediments. Unlike many reptiles, the ichthyosaurs gave birth to live young. 
And this means that if the birth had been completed, the youngster would have immediately gone to the surface of the water for its first breath. That just tells you that this fossil had to have been formed suddenly, completely, catastrophically. That's certainly a dramatic example that at some point in the Earth's past history, vast quantities of sediment were being swirled around in the oceans. If the bodies of the dead animals that became fossils had been exposed for any length of time, fossils wouldn't have formed at all. So fossils, like that which have features so beautifully preserved, must have been buried and hardened before they could be damaged by scavengers or decay. Is that the only fossil evidence that demonstrates the Earth was subjected to a massive flood that covered the entire surface? Definitely not. So data point number nine is that there are large fossil beds that contain mixtures of both marine animals and land animals. Now, it's very unlikely that these kind of animals would have been living in close proximity to one another during their life. So the fact that they were buried together suggests that they were swept up in a common catastrophe and that they were quickly deposited under a thick layer of protective sediment. Now, the fact that marine and land animals were quickly buried together strongly suggests that the burial took place underwater. Far more likely that the land animal would have been swept into the water than that the marine animal would have somehow been swept on top of land. For instance, one of the richest fossil discoveries that's ever been made was near a huge deposit of coal near Autun in France. Now, some of the fossils that were discovered in this particular deposit were saltwater marine creatures. Some of the animals discovered were definitely freshwater dwellers. They were amphibious. And some of the animals discovered were definitely land creatures like scorpions or spiders, millipedes. There were some other insects and reptiles as well. So this kind of the mixing of creatures from widely separated normal habitats could easily have occurred when all the creatures were brought together by some sort of ultra-massive flooding. And this kind of fossil bed, where land and sea creatures aren't mixed, isn't limited to that bed. Fossils discovered in Hell Creek Rock Formation in Montana contain not only the largest ever T. rex fossil, but also the teeth of various species of small marine sharks. The T. rex fossil also contained intact soft tissue and protein. The discovery of soft tissue that was still, quote, soft and stretchy, and intact proteins really poses a problem for the hypothesis that dinosaurs lived tens of millions of years ago. Even the chief of the team that first discovered the intact soft tissue, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, has admitted that there is no known way soft tissue could be intact after tens of millions of years. They also discovered proteins such as collagen, hemoglobin, osteocalcin, and tubulin. These are complex molecules that continually break down to simpler ones. All of these discoveries are perfectly consistent with dinosaurs being around in Noah's time and the fossils being created by a worldwide flood. Right. So data point 10 is that there are other features on the Earth that point out that at some time in the past, there was some kind of a huge hydrological event that created vast deposits of vegetation that would be extremely hard to explain in any other way. For instance, in Australia, there's an enormous coal deposit called the Latrobe Valley Coal Measures. Now, the coal seams that occur there occur within thick layers of clay, sand, and basaltic lava, 
And altogether, they form a sequence of rocks that's over 2,000 feet deep. These lie in a large, deep depression that's called the basin. And this particular basin is triangular shaped, and it's almost 200 miles wide and long. Now, most of the basin lies actually under the ocean off the southern coast of Australia. And offshore, the coal measures are estimated to be almost three miles thick. Now, the Latrobe Valley coal consists of a mass of very fine plant debris that contains partially decomposed plant remains. So it's clear that a great quantity of plant material had to have been somehow accumulated in the past to produce such a huge deposit of coal. Now, the easiest explanation for this accumulation of this huge amount of plant material is that there was a worldwide catastrophic flood that brought all that material together suddenly and completely, just dumped it in one place, and subsequently buried it so it stayed in place. But of course, there are geologists who believe that a biblical flood didn't cause the Latrobe Valley coal measures, aren't there? Some geologists believe that the coal deposits were created by an enormous swamp where plants just grew up for hundreds of thousands of years, and as they died, they gradually accumulated in layers deep enough to form the coal. They say that the vegetation accumulated as peat in a swamp during ideal climatic and geologic conditions. They say the swamps formed on floodplains near the coast, which were slowly sinking and eventually inundated by the ocean. Isn't that a possibility? Well, it's a possibility, but there are problems with that kind of an explanation. First problem is that there's no sign of soil underneath the coal. And if there had been plants growing, they obviously would have had been soil for them to be growing in. So there's no sign of soil being deposited under the coal. Instead, the coal is resting on a thick layer of clay and that the contact between the coal and the clay is so clean that it's almost like it could have been cut with a knife edge. And this particular clay is a kaolin clay And it's so pure a clay that it could be used for high-class pottery. Furthermore, there are no signs of roots that are penetrating the clay. So if plants had even been somehow growing on top of the clay, there would have been signs that their roots would have at least penetrated the clay. The second problem with that explanation is that not only is there no soil, but the vegetation that is found in the coal is not the kind of vegetation that grows in swamps. Instead, is the kind of vegetation that's mostly found in mountain rainforests. The best match for the kind of vegetation that's found in the Latrobe Valley coal measures is the kind of vegetation that occurs on the western half of the island of New Guinea, and that part of the island is 4,000 to 7,000 feet above sea level. Similar vegetation is also found, again, in the mountains in Australia, Malaysia, New Caledonia, and New Zealand. So the kind of plants that make up the coal there did not grow in a swamp on a floodplain, which is how, for that explanation to make sense, is how they would have had to have grown. Third, within the coal seams, there are some extremely pollen-rich layers that are up to 20 inches thick. Now that's a lot of pollen. So it makes sense that the pollen might have all been washed there at one time together by water because flowing water would sort vegetation into its different components. But the idea that you could get a 20-inch thick pollen-rich layer that could gradually accumulate in a coastal swamp over a long period of time just doesn't make any sense. And when this particular coal burns, it leaves behind hardly any ash. The ash that's produced from this coal ranges from about a 1.5% to 5% residue, and that is a far lower percentage of ash that would remain behind 
if this ash had come from the typical peat that would grow in a coastal swamp. Also, the low ash is consistent with vegetation having been transported and washed by the water, not just lying in a swamp for tens of thousands of years. There are a number of very distinct volcanic ash layers that run through the coal. If the vegetation had been grown in a swamp, these distinct ash layers would not be there. After each volcanic eruption, the volcanic texture of the ash would have been obliterated because when the swamp plants came back and recolonized the ash, the plants would have turned it into soil. So the explanation that this huge coal deposit came from a coastal swamp that just accumulated plant material over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years is just not consistent with the empirical observations that we get from the coal that is there. And the Latrobe Valley coal measures is not the only feature we see on the face of the earth that points to a massive flood as its cause, but it's one that is easy to think about concretely and absorb readily. And listeners who would like to study this point more thoroughly can go to creation.com, which is the website for Creation Ministries International. So, what is data point 11? Data point 11 is that we see pretty clear genetic evidence of the flood, even in the composition of the human population that's currently living on the Earth. Now, we can see this through what is known as mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is a limited set of DNA that's not found in a cell's nucleus where most of the DNA is, but is found in an organelle that is more or less the power plant of the cell, which is called the mitochondrion. Now, mitochondria DNA is generally only inherited from the mother. So as such, the distribution of mitochondrial DNA is a very good reflection of the distribution of the world's population, and it can give us a lot of insight into our female ancestors. Well, genetic studies of mitochondrial DNA have shown that there are three main lines of mitochondrial DNA present around the world. Evolutionists actually refer to these lines as M, N, and R. Now, when this discovery was first made, the evolutionists were all surprised at the lack of diversity that was present in the mitochondrial lines. But of course, the fact that there are three mitochondrial lines of DNA is entirely consistent with the Bible's flood account. Yes, it's important to remember that all the people living today are descendants of Noah's three sons and their wives. So the lines of mitochondrial DNA that would be present could only have come from one of the four women on the ark, Noah's wife or his three daughters-in-law. But the Bible never tells us that Noah had any daughters, only sons. Noah's sons would have not contributed to the mitochondrial descent lines. So it's reasonable to conclude that the three main mitochondrial DNA lines we see present on the earth today trace back to Noah's three daughters-in-law. Again, this is observational evidence that is consistent with the Bible's flood account. Listeners who would like to investigate the subject further should visit creation.com, where there are several good articles on this subject, and there's a discussion of the flood effect on the DNA in Chapter 19 of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's commentary on Genesis called The Genesis Account. So data point 11 is that even human genetics points out that at one point in the past, there was something that caused a bottleneck in the population. This bottleneck resulted in the preservation of three primary lines of mitochondrial DNA, and one simple explanation for how that happened is provided by the Bible's flood account. So, what about data point 12? 
Well, data point 12 is what I call the story of the story. You know, if you have any event as catastrophic as the biblical flood, you're going to expect that the story of that event is going to be repeated from generation to generation to generation. The father's going to tell the sons and daughters. They're going to tell their sons and daughters. They're going to tell their sons and daughters over and over again. And that's going to go on. I mean, if you have a worldwide flood, the repetition of that story is going to go on through dozens or hundreds of generations. Well, of course, when the story is repeated, it's not always going to be repeated as the same story. Over time, stories tend to grow. They tend to be embellished. Or sometimes they're just repeated erroneously. Some anthropologists have estimated that the time it takes for a true story to grow into a myth may be a period of hundreds or a thousand years or so. But this embellishment and this transformation of the original flood story is exactly what we see around the world today. And there are some observers who have counted almost 200 different variants on the flood story that exist around the world. And just about every culture on Earth has some kind of a flood story. What are some of the best known of the variants? Well, as we mentioned in our last episode, one of the best known of the variants, and probably the one that most closely tracks the biblical account, is the Babylonian flood narrative. In the Babylonian narrative, their Noah is called Utnapishtim. Now, Utnapishtim in the Babylonian flood story is warned by a friendly god in advance that a great flood is coming onto the earth, and this friendly god orders Utnapishtim to build an ark not only to save his own family, but also a group of representative animals. The Ark of Utnapishtim ultimately grounds itself on a mountain called Nisir in a mountain range that's northeast of Babylon. But as we also mentioned last time, the design of Utnapishtim's Ark reveals that the Bible account is far more reasonable. In the Babylonian account, the Ark Utnapishtim built was a perfect cube with six decks. It goes without saying that, in complete opposition to the stability of the biblical ark, a cube-shaped vessel would roll and capsize quite easily in open waters. Such a vessel could never have remained upright in the roiling seas that would have been present in the initial flood conditions. Yes, and that lack of reasonability marks other flood legends. A couple of quick examples. There's an Ojibwa Indian legend from around Lake Superior that tells of a great snow that fell one September at the beginning of time. Now, there was a bag that was containing the sun's heat until a mouse nibbled a hole in it. And then the warmth of the sun spilled over. It melted this great snow, and the melting of the snow produced a great flood that rose above the tops of even the highest pines. And in the Ojibwa legend, everyone was drowned except for an old man who drifted around in his canoe rescuing animals. There's another Native American legend from a tribe called the Havasupai. And this legend attributes the carving of the Grand Canyon to a catastrophic flood that came down the Colorado River when the god Hokamata unleashed a tremendous rainstorm. Now a more benevolent god, Puke'e, put his daughter in a hollowed-out log to save her from the monstrous current. And after the flood receded, the daughter came out of the hollowed-out log and became the mother of all humanity. 
So as I've said, there's probably 200 different flood legends that exist around the world, but it's easy to see that these legends are very different from the straightforward, very plain almost account of Noah and the ark that's contained in the Bible. So these flood legends certainly contain, well, sometimes dramatic elements, but they contain elements of stories that obviously just don't fit with our real-world observations, whereas the elements of the biblical story obviously do. So, it's easy to see that these kinds of legends contain mythological elements that are quite different from the reserved and historical character of the biblical account. Okay, what about your 13th data point? Well, my 13th data point is that the Ice Age is a very good case where the biblical flood account makes a lot more sense than conventional explanations for the Ice Age. Remember that the Bible says that the cause of the flood wasn't just a torrential rain for 40 days, but also that the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, many biblical geologists will agree that this refers not only to the fact that some underwater volcanoes erupted into the oceans, but also that there may have been subterranean reservoirs of extremely hot liquids that were also injected into the oceans. Well, these kind of conditions would have been ideal for an ice age to develop. The ocean's temperature would obviously have risen. Warm water evaporates far more quickly than cool water. So all that additional evaporation would have produced abundant precipitation over the land for an extended period of time. At the same time, if there are volcanoes erupting, the volcanic ash that would have been injected into the atmosphere would have begun reflecting sunlight, and this reflection of the sunlight would have produced a protracted period of colder weather. So elevated levels of precipitation over land, plus a protracted period of much colder weather, this would have provided perfect conditions for ice sheets to form over the land in the upper parts of the northern hemisphere and over Antarctica. Do you have any final thoughts for today? Yes. I want to point out a worldwide flood, as described by the Bible, provides a very clear and straightforward explanation for all of the phenomena that we have been discussing throughout this series. So you get from the biblical account one clear and straightforward explanation for all of these different kinds of phenomena that we see. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for the upcoming celebration of American independence, the 4th of July. Prayer for July 4th Father of truth and life, we exalt your name because you are the source of all good gifts that we enjoy. You rule not only the destinies of men, but also the destinies of nations. In your good pleasure, you raise nations up and you bring others down. There is no activity in the universe, much less in the world, that falls outside your dominion. Lord, we are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom, and we seek first your glory. Still, in your mercy, you have also made some of your children citizens of the United States. We cherish this privilege that you have extended to us. This was a nation initially brought into being by men and women who found in your word a strong call to freedom and a dependence on your providence. Through their faith, you led them to establish a land where its people could choose their leaders, worship freely, and work for their own prosperity. 
We are grateful for their virtue and the vision that they brought into reality. Today, we celebrate the legacy that they passed to us. In celebrating today, however, we are mindful that this nation has wandered far from the principles on which it was established. In America today, too often, freedom of worship has been exchanged for license to condemn the worship of the one true God. Regard for the sanctity of innocent human life has been traded for the false idol of convenient choice. Free enterprise has been chiseled into the cheap counterfeits of rapacious commercialism and rampant consumerism. Respect for truth has been sacrificed on the altar of diminished discernment, and reverence for you has been trampled beneath smug, self-satisfied, and presumptuous feet. We pray that you would forgive us for wandering so far, and in your mercy we pray for restoration. We ask that you help us to again embrace your word as truth and your call to holiness as a personal charge. We pray that you would renew our passion for a relationship with you that is truly redemptive and not self-indulgent. We pray that you would guide and direct our leaders and bring many to a saving knowledge of your majesty. We pray that your children would again become salt and light through the steadfastness of their testimony. The Bible commands us to be good citizens. We celebrate today because we cherish our citizenship in this nation. We pray that we would honor our freedom by helping others to see the real liberty found only in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.